Murrumbilla didn't exist. It's not like someone handed me an ensemble and an arts organisation. I had to actually carve it out and create it from scratch so that I could then have an artistic vehicle to express what I believe needed to be said. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural, remote and regional Australia. Hi, I'm Sky Manson, your host for this episode. Our guest today is Michelle Leonard, OAM, Artistic Director and Founder of Morumbilla Voices, an exceptional choir and coming together of children and youth from Western New South Wales and a program that is deeply connected to the land in which its art is made on. If you've ever been privy to Morumbilla Voices, you will know its power giving rural children the chance to really be a part of something so much bigger than themselves. Music, singing and instruments is innate for Michelle and her talented family who hail from the small rural town of Canamble in New South Wales. Driven by a belief that music has the ability to improve mental health, community and deep spiritual connection, Michelle applied for a grant back in 2006, in what was to become the beginning of Murrumbilla Voices, which still exists and thrives today. In that time, more than 25,000 students from 100 schools annually come together to find their voice in a myriad of ways. Only last week, over 300 children performed at its 17th annual gala concert near Dubbo. Uh, look, I've had some pretty funny people try to explain Morumbilla voices. Um, a front for feminism uh, was one very funny fellow uh, and <laughs> uh, an artistic cult and choirs that can't kill. And basically it's, it is an arts organisation that seeks at its very core to provide regional and remote children um, equitable access to excellence um, across the choral, dance, taiko and visual arts sphere. And it has since inception had a very clear focus on connecting people to the stories and the energy, the beauty and the history um, of the landscape and the country upon which they live to, I hope, give them a greater insight into how extraordinary Australia is and how extraordinary their own potential is. So we use choirs because I love choirs as a vehicle, but it really is um, about a much wider worldview. And it just so happens to be that it's an artistic vehicle uh, that we use on this occasion. So tell me about how you do that, how the connection to country and the land that they live on is um, is so close through singing. Well, um, the country that we live on, Australia, is it's an extraordinary place. It really is. And it's massive. And every part of this country has its own energy and its own power that tends to 
inadvertently affect the worldview of the inhabitants, whether you're living by the ocean, by a river, in a desert, um, in a paddock, on red earth, on black earth, on sandy, on loamy soil. And it's always been that way. We also now are slowly coming to terms with the fact that this remarkable country um, has also got a remarkable history of people who are the longest um, living, um, cultural, uh, sociological, economical, um, robust and intelligent uh, group in the history of the world. And that's the Australian Aboriginal people. And I think perhaps it was only maybe through the fires where mainstream people went, oh, hang on, there's something we could probably learn here. Oh, wow, radio, better get into that then in very sort of laconic Australian fashion. Um, but I think for a lot of people who've grown up in rural or remote Australia, their connection to their sense of place in on country and their connection to people who have had that continual connection to that country for upward of 80,000 years and, and more probably by the time this podcast goes to print, someone will have proved that it's even longer and that's going to really help undo people's heads. Um, we're slowly feeling that, uh, you know, we're dancing and singing and and being on the same space that has had people singing and dancing and being creative and joyful and connected and positive on it for a very long time. So we're just part of that trajectory, really. That's how I see it. Um, and Murrumbilla voices, we use the human voice because it is the oldest and the most spectacular of all instruments in my humble opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, but also you carry your voice with you and uh, we know that when you're joyful and when you're happy, you sing. When you need to express yourself in times of sadness, people sing. When people want to connect with each other, they sing. Uh, when people want to let out any sort of emotional response, they sing. Um, not everyone sings uh, the same, but uh, not everyone runs the same. I don't know what you look like running, but <laughs> I'm pretty terrible. Not good. <laughs> it's really not good. Um, but, you know, by strictest definition, it is running and I'll work with that. And I think that's the same uh, for humans and their capacity to connect with their own voice and to share that joyful connection with others. And certainly for children, it's innate. Everyone, they all do it. They're wonderful. So, Michelle, in your private life and probably in your public life, lots too, but how, how much do you sing? How, how often are you singing from the second you wake up? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I, I think the less stressed I am, the more I sing in the shower. Um, but I now, um, my kids have just come back from doing the Marumbilla camps with me. And my youngest uh, last night, I was overhearing him singing what he was singing to his other brother and his older brother, his voices changed, and they were discussing, you know, almost like a like a footy score, how high one could go and what their piece did and what the other one did. And there was this sort of small cacophony of sound down, uh, down on the bottom floor here as I walked down the stairs and I just laughed because I thought, 
these lovely young men and perhaps that generation, they're really quite comfortable singing. They think it's pretty normal. No one's saying, nah, you sound terrible, shut mm. up, mate. You know, mm. it's really lovely. Yeah. Um, and for me, I often, if I'm turning a musical idea through my head, um, if I'm by myself, I might sing it. Um, but I probably professionally, I've got to a point where I can look at a piece of music and go, that will lift, that will fit someone's voice or this demographic or this ensemble well, or if you tweak this or do that, you know, I mean, it's just like people looking at sheep and knowing which ones you've got to cull and which ones you don't, how many are there, you know, after a while, um, you know how to do that quite quickly. And, and then you, you know, you start to alter your, your breeding program or, you know, what you're doing to be able to make it work. And I think it's certainly the same with, um, with a lot of things artistically, but particularly music is a, um, it's a trade conducting and working with ensembles. It is a trade that you learn by doing and by life experiences, cumulative life experiences. So there's, um, yeah, I, I, I certainly, uh, I certainly sing in rehearsal if it's not working, but if there's someone that can do it better than me and there's invariably many, I'll let them do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to wind back a little bit because you come from a family, um, a a long line of family that is extraordinarily talented in the musical sphere. I wonder if you could tell me, um, just to paint the picture, how within your family, your brothers yeah. and your sisters, your aunties, uncles, father, mother, grandpa, how many musicians they are and what instruments they play and who's the singer? And Yeah, look, uh, I mean, it is an interesting thing, isn't it, um, to sort of look back and try and find a, a lineage. And mm. often people will do that musically and they'll say, oh, they're a musician or they're an artist because, you know, previous generations were. Um, I think my, um, I mentioned to you that my family are originally from Canamble and uh, certainly when, uh, and my father just turned 100. Uh, so they've been there for quite some time, I think we could safely say. Um, and certainly when he was growing up, there was a lot of live music that was happening in rural and remote communities in Australia. And uh, the Brigidine nuns had their massive convent there in Canamble and had an annex to the con. So they taught strings and woodwind. I'm sure they didn't do brass and certainly piano. Um, And my father's mother was by all accounts quite an extraordinary violinist, a very, very calmly spoken Irish woman. Um, And his father, like a lot of people, played an instrument as a social thing So they met playing, there was an opera company, I think they played in that. They certainly played in the black and white movies. Um, And she was the lead violinist and was was very good, you know. All from Canamble. All from Canamble. They'd come straight out from Ireland, I think, pretty much. Um, And so they were very capable uh, musicians, but there was a lot of people did a lot of music. There were choirs, there was multiple orchestras, there were town bands, there were dance bands, you know, in a little town now that um, that that doesn't have that. So um, it seems to us to be quite peculiar to have um, people that were playing and, and earning part of their living 
from being musicians. Um, but it seemed to be the norm from what I can understand. And then there'd be dance bands that would go all the way around. And in fact, the hall that we rehearse in in Baradine now had three live dance bands a week where people were doing ballroom dancing and they'd come from everywhere to dance on this extraordinary floor where we now rehearse. Um, and I, you know, I actually can't find an accompanist in that third of New South Wales. I have to bring mm. someone in. So um, things have certainly shifted. Um, my mother's family um, were not professional musicians, but she had a deep love for it and pursued uh, piano um, and came down to Sydney and, and learnt at a very high level and taught. Um, but there was always this underlying um, assumption that it was a wonderful thing for your brain and for your soul to have that opportunity to express yourself in that medium. You know, they certainly weren't people who wrote poetry or people who painted. Um, and, you know, I've seen people from that generation who did extraordinary work in sewing or knitting the men as well, you know. Um, but I think their avenue for creativity and connection to their community came through the musical sphere. So for us, it became partly an intellectual pursuit and partly a way of connecting um, us to a wider ecology of people who were educated and valued um, education for its sake to help you question and move things forward. So, um, you know, when you when you learn another language, you see the world through different eyes and music is certainly another language really, but it's a universal language. So mm. you can play those notes anywhere if you can read them. Uh, so I think that's what they really help connect us to. So when growing up in Canamble, and obviously you've got this huge musical influence and also encouragement from your parents to educate yourselves to a high degree. Um, did you feel as you were growing up that your your talent was bigger than, than Canamble or could it give you everything that you needed? Oh, gosh. I never even thought I had a, a talent at all, to be absolutely honest. Um, I don't think there was... There was no one that went, you're gifted at anything in those days. It was certainly smashed right out of you. Um, oh, <laughs> you know, yes. don't, get a, don't get a fat head. Mm. Um, so, um, and if you can do it, well, then make sure that you can find someone else to help you come. You know, that was pretty much the, the methodology. Um, I really, um, I loved reading as a child. I was probably more obsessed about reading than I was about making music or practicing scales that, that wasn't really something that got me out of bed. I mean, I understood the importance of it, but I didn't want to do it. Um, and I, but what I really liked was when I got down uh, to a music camp, my very first one, and I sat inside, um, which was then what they called a symphonic wind orchestra. So I was playing clarinet, I'm a clarinet owner. Um, but, uh, it was amazing because there was another 90 people um, and we had Tommy Tico actually as the conductor. God bless that man. Such a patient educator, formidable intellect, but just so patient with us. And we were a very motley crew and mm -hmm. um, he arranged for us. And 
it was really wonderful to watch the colours of this ensemble being manipulated so everyone felt important and you had something meaningful to, to contribute to the overall artistic end. And that became quite a wonderful thing for me to motivate myself. Um, I liked singing in the choir that they had there, but what I really loved when I was in year 12 was the conductor for the school choir. She was sick or something and um, I don't know what took me to say, but I said, oh, well, I wouldn't mind taking the rehearsal. And I did and I went, oh, this is it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. It is. Uh, and, and it's just probably laziness. So I just went, I can do this easily and some people can't do this easily. Well, I suppose it's a leadership role, isn't it? It's. Um... Oh, I, I think it was just being able to make people sing well quickly that I had a natural capacity for. And sometimes, you know, people spend their whole lives trying to do things that are terribly, terribly hard. And I think I might have been a little lazy and went, oh, God, you all find this hard. I find it easy. I might do that then. <laughs> might be an easier mm -hmm. road. Mm -hmm. But um, I certainly, like, I loved conducting the other ensembles when I was at the con and, and other places, but I just, I just found I was able to help people be more capable in a shorter period of time. I just seemed to know or, and was very interested in what were the shortcuts to get them to sound great quickly. Before that moment, what did you think you would go on to become? What would, did, what oh, did you, what I really loved geography. I love geography um, and I loved environmental geography. Um, I particularly, I like geophysics um, and I love the study of um, rocks. I had an extraordinary geography teacher. So had music not turned out, I think I, uh, for me, hadn't got into the con, I would have pursued that and loved it. Um, I love the, um, the way people were able to look at um, ecologies and and analyze why they were functioning or not, and then seek to try and create um, systems within systems to help amplify what was working. Uh -huh. Really, so it sounds to me like, am I right in thinking that sort of as you were going through secondary school, mm. you were very involved in the musical scene, um, but that you weren't necessarily thinking that that would be, that anything would become of that. I mean, but you obviously applied to go to the con. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting um, thing um, because for my generation, and I finished school in 1988, I'm not sure that they were quite prepared uh, for women to be doing a full-time long-term career that wasn't something they could slot in around supporting their husband's career and then as supporting their children. So the idea of a, a musical career was acceptable if it was educationally based, mm -hmm. but in terms of a freelance or a leadership role, I think that was way, way beyond anyone's expectation, not only just of me, but of, of anyone really and then you come from a pragmatic rural family who are like well you're going to have to eat um so if you insist upon doing music well you better get an education degree because you won't be underemployed um and so by the time my sister came through um and she was a far more formidable and extraordinary soloist than i was ever capable of being there was no way she was going to do an education degree she was just going to go straight for solo work um 
but even then, um, and it was still quite unusual. And to be perfectly honest, even now, it's quite unusual. Um, and uh, I think that is slowly changing, but the progression in the arts is not linear. Um, and it is, as so often has been said to me, it's a lifestyle choice. Mm. <laughs> it's a bit like farming. You know, you never switch off. Mm. You're always on um, and you're always seeking to improve or to create relationships or understand the nuance of things. So um, it, it is, um, and, and I can understand from a parent's perspective why they would be rather frightened um, of you wanting to pursue that just for yourself. But Elena Katz-Chernin, perhaps Australia's most famous female composer, internationally renowned, um, she has this hilarious, uh, hilarious, absolutely hilarious take on it. And she says, if you can think of anything else, please do it. <laughs> so if you're asking, you know, she'll have people going, coming to her, young aspiring composers saying, do you think I should be a composer? And she says, well, you know, <laughs> if you can think of doing anything else, do it. But if, if, you know, if this is, and it is, it really is, this is who you are. This is the essence of who you are and what you do. It's not, it's not really a choice. Um, it, it chooses you and, um, and then off you go. So why is it still, there's not a lot of women sort of at the top doing what, doing what you're doing? Uh, well, I've got a really unusual role in that I have I have a degree outside of music as well. I did a master's outside of music. And um, then I came back into creating an arts organisation. Um, there are, well, we're the only regional New South Wales arts organisation outside of regional arts that I know of that's on triennial funding from Create New South Wales. So that's unusual. Um, we've been going now for 18 years. There hasn't been any new ones since then. Uh, it's a brutal administrative situation. So that's problematic. Um, I think um, the skill set that is required to work in the arts sector um, particularly if you want to work outside of a city-centric base, means that you've got to have grown up and understood the nuances of that environment. You need to be ridiculously committed to equity um, and excellence. So that places you in, that's a little bit more unusual. Um, and I think... Um, for me, I'm not so interested in con in continuing to perpetuate the worldview of dead white female musically. I'm very, very interested in seeing what um, our Australian contemporary composers can make of uh, the world we live in and how we connect with it. Um, male or female, I don't know, or binary, it doesn't really bother me. Um, people that have a, a capacity to to understand the, the the energy of these spaces and to manifest that energy um, creatively in whatever idiom they choose. So it is a fairly unusual thing. Um, I think a lot of women do come into leadership roles 
later. Um, and, you know, there is nothing unleadership about running households and having children and working. Like that is mission critical tight deadline constantly. Uh, what happens is the training mechanisms are often uh, very early on. And as much as I um, have had these conversations regularly with a variety of educational institutions, there are not an enormous amount of 18 year old females that know that they wish to be a conductor in any art form um, and are prepared to stand on a podium and be, um, uh, you know, forensically uh, pulled apart with their gesticulations to get a musical end. Um, it is possible, um, but you will find often a lot more 18, 19 year old gentlemen who are fairly sure that they should be there on a permanent basis. Um, yet by the time the young women have done the same degrees and learnt and done or whatever, they're either going, I'm 25 or 26 and I would like to be on the podium or actually I don't want to be on a podium with a large ensemble. I, I want to be working collaboratively with the smaller ensemble and co-creating or doing other things and again that's um that's a different uh, career trajectory um that is a bit more nuanced and i'm not saying we're blowing up the system but i'm saying we're creating another space so uh, murumbilla didn't exist it's not like someone handed me an ensemble and an arts organisation. I had to actually carve it out and create it from scratch so that I could then have an artistic vehicle to express what I believe needed to be said. Mm. Um, so you're making the system, you're, you're making the whole thing from scratch. Um, and there are certainly, there are certainly a lot of people that would like to be on the podium for that concert doing what I do. And there are a lot of people that are potentially far more uh, technically capable of doing that aspect of the role, but that isn't the whole role. Yes. 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 So tell me, going back to you, um, mm. I don't think we can kind of skip over your experience at the Conservatorium of Music and sort of where that led you. And then, and then we'll talk more about how Lauren Biller actually came to be. Um, so what happened for you at the Conservatorium of Music? Right. Well, um, look, the first year was fairly brutal, actually. Um, I was underprepared for the level of accuracy and um, rigour and detail that they were expecting. Um, I had gone to Loretta College, Normanhurst. I thought that I was well equipped um, with a music capacity, you know, I certainly had the facility as an instrumentalist, but there were some significant gaps. Um, and I nearly tapped out at the end of the first year, I thought, oh, I'll go and do law, can't be that bloody hard. Um, <laughs> compared to this. Um, but I who, had, who were you there with as well? Like, what oh, I had the most fantastic women and men? Yeah, heaps and heaps of people. Um, and it was a lot more it was a very diverse group, actually. Um, a lot of them, we were doing the education degree, so we had to do the performance plus the education in those days. Uh, so that was brutal. Um, and in my year, there were um, 
they were all practicing musicians. They were gigging, uh, lots of percussionists, uh, brass players, pianists, uh, singers, those who went on to study opera. Um, Mila Ferrugio ended up being in our year. She went and did work and then came back in. Joa Carrier has done very, very well in the commercial sector. Um, a lot of the guys are now all heads of music. Um, a lot of them have gone on to do, you know, massive sort of further study um, in very specific sort of areas. And there was only 30 of us. It was tiny. Any, any regional regional that people? Stupid. Were no, you no, the no. only country person? Oh, God, yes. I was the only person who'd gone to a boarding school. They thought I was going to be a nun because I'd mm -hmm. gone to a Catholic boarding school. That was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, no, 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 no regional. Um, and, in fact, look, I hadn't even pegged myself as regional. I was still a duck out of water. I was half from Canamble and half from, you know, a boarding school. So I didn't fit in there. And, you know, yeah. one of those you don't fit in anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but what was really fascinating and so awesome was the work ethic of that particular year and um, they were very disparate um, people but they were absolutely obsessed about becoming better um, so you could start um, and be practicing in the old con building at 7am you could hear everyone because nothing was airtight um, and you could still be there at 10 o'clock at night easy um, and I was very fortunate that that first couple of years we hadn't amalgamated in a, in a way I was fortunate with Sydney University and so I just did everything. So mm -hmm. my, um, my, the litany of subjects is insane and you did them every week. So I could do choir and chamber choir and orchestra and wind symphony um, and percussion ensemble and piano ensemble plus, um, you know, your histories and your every everything you possibly wanted um music and technology in those dim dark days was not really a thing um it just sort of started by the time i got to fourth year but everything was very much alive um and there was this um real belief that if they gave you the skill set that you could actually do whatever you set your mind to um and that year did you I have think, that within you before that? I think um, by the time I'd finished that first year and got through, uh, I mean, they were funny. The humour of these, uh, of, my, of the people I went to the con with, it was awesome. Uh, and a really strong sense of um, anti-establishmentarianism, which appealed. Mm -hmm. um, they certainly changed some of the criteria for that class moving forward the years below us were not as anti-establishment i can i can I'm, I'm smiling and i can't say anymore mm -hmm. um but uh what it gave was a ferocious creative energy and there was this wonderful energy between the composer the composers and across the other years as well um and the lecturers were they they were very firm but fair on what they expected you know very 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 different perhaps to some scenarios now where the students are clients you know like we were you know we were grateful to be there and to be learning from people that had learned from the very best you know it's that sort of that end of an era 
mm. sort of a thing, mm. I think, yeah. as well. Um, and I, yes, I've probably got a bit of rose tinted glasses on it. Um, but we, you, you couldn't do another job, even if you wanted to, because it was a very, very, very full week. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. I really did. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, it's a bit of a shame that these four years are over and I've actually got to go and do something now. And you went on to become the head of music at a boarding school at the age of 21, which was quite a thing, yeah, wasn't it? Was it was a bit foolish. Um, yes. Look, I mean, there's many decisions that you can make along the way. Someone saw potential. Um, that's great. And like a lot of people, you know, I think those, you know, your whole 20s is, it really is about biting off more than you can chew a lot of the time. You know, I was doing that. I was freelancing, doing other conducting, other choral work, trying to, you know, get some other study and things happening, just trying to really uh, extend myself and see where it had land. Um, and that was a very fabulous time, you know, um, Newtown High School of the Performing Arts, fabulous. Um, con high, con tertiary, when I was back moonlighting, fabulous. Gondwana voices, fabulous, but um, very, very busy. Um, so sometimes in amongst all that busyness and overseas travel and um, learning, you do have to try and stop and solidify. And, and for me, really that solidification of ideas came when I had my first child, Sophia, and when I'm not going to be able to continue on the, this style of a trajectory, I need to create something that will allow me to still connect to the things that I love and um, utilise the skills I have, but I can do it a bit more on my own terms. So how did you do that? Mm, not much sleep and a lot of coffee. <laughs> not much changes, does it? <laughs> no, a procedure and a great team of remarkable uh, humans around you who went, yeah, all right, have a crack. Have a go. Yeah. I mean, what's the worst thing that you're going to do? Fail? Well, pick yourself up and keep going. So how did Canamble come back into your life? It's never left. True. It's just never left. Um and I think for a lot of people, that's a fairly universal experience. If you've uh, left uh, a small community when you're at a, a younger age, early adolescence, you've gone away to get your education, you do have to try and make peace with yourself on how you fit in both worlds. And um, so one of the ways that I tried to do that was through this, you know, a wider sort of narrative arc of, of Murumbilla. Um, but I see people doing it in so many, many different ways. Um, and it's it can be quite a wonderful thing because it allows uh, the children and the communities and the other adults um, in those places that you're engaging with to see that there is a possibility for that, um, mm. to be able to do a bit of both until you want to decide or you decide not to decide or, you know, it's more you than one way. so right. Yes. I Yeah, I've done two interviews today. Um, yours is one and I've just recorded another one who have both said profound things along those lines that mm. 
you are so rooted in where you grow up regionally and to step outside of that is um, very difficult, but then it's also quite hard to step back in as well. Um, oh, it's brutal. Um, and I think the thing is maybe um, as we get a little older and wiser or try to get wiser, that in rather looking at it in a bipolarity, that it's either or, that there is often a way to have an and, um, and the, the percentage of that and may change over your life's trajectory, but that is the, the joy in it um, instead of negating some of those experiences and trying to be uh, completely Sydney-centric or whatever. You know, mm. My children say to me after eight weeks, Mum, could you just go? Because uh, you're turning weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think after eight weeks in, uh, in any capital city, anywhere in the world, I just like, this is not for me. Um, but I can sustain the facade for eight to 10 weeks. And certainly after that 21 week lockdown last year, that was awful. <laughs> Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by AgriFutures Australia. It's time to celebrate the amazing women in our communities who are demonstrating leadership on a daily basis. If you or someone you know has a project or idea that has the potential to change rural and regional Australia, it's time to share it. Applications for the 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award and Acceleration Grant are open now and close on Wednesday the 19th of October 2022. Find out more at agrifutures.com.au. Thanks to Westpac for being platinum sponsors of the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. So tell me the story of how Morumbilla Voices came to be. You know, it is an interesting thing because I just, I had the skill set and I had friends and relatives who went, well, what are you going to do with that skill set other than just give it to the city kids, Michelle? And really it just came down to Catholic guilt, I suppose, and a <laughs> and a couple of glasses of more, more glasses than I should have had at the Rodeo in Canamble on that June long weekend. Um, I think like a lot of ideas that are, quite um, radical from the outside, that they're very calm and logical um, and they're cumulative um, when you're in them. And so a lot like, um, a lot like life really, um, you just pop one foot after the other and it just becomes easier. So we started with a boys choir and had the music written and made a little festival and a place for them to perform. And Tell me about had, the conversation that you had with your mates as to what the need was to create something like this. Well, um, I don't think it's an, um, I don't think the, I don't think people are as aware even now of how invaluable the connection live performative arts are to people's mental health and the way that that really connects communities. And 
bands and choirs and orchestras were places where people were not drinking and singing and playing at like, you know, B&Ss mm. and whatever else, that they're actually um, intellectually engaged in creating an artwork. And it is deeply satisfying at an emotional and a spiritual and a creative level, as well as forming these um, incredibly strong community bonds that are intergenerational. So we grew up with that and that has eroded significantly over the last 25 years in mm. not just rural Australia. What I offer the children now in Murrumbilla, I, my children here in Sydney don't have access to. Um, so I, I think what my friends were bearing witness to or the start of bearing witness to was what they had as children they couldn't offer their own children and as mothers and as women in leadership roles in community and they often are the leaders in communities um you fully anticipate that the trajectory of your child's life will be far superior to your own they will have better health outcomes. They'll have better educational opportunities. They'll have um, more chance to be who they are, whatever that is. You know, you, this is the, the framework that you put on things. And so when that looks like not happening at all, then you really start to rally. And so that's, I think really when you strip it back, that's what happened. And there was just a festival grant and we, we went for it and we got it. And we only had something like seven weeks to turn around a festival and regional camps and it was just madness. And it's the sort of thing now that we would not be able to do. And the amount of red tape and risk mitigating management procedural documentation, strategic planning ESGs, you know, all the acronyms that we now need, if I'd thought that we needed all of those before when we started, we wouldn't have even got out of bed. Mm. But we just went, well, it's pretty. And I, I said to myself, I'm going to start with the boys choir first because I think it'll be harder to find the boys, <laughs> foolishly, uh, to sing, but they were the most competitive and fabulous of all. Um, it actually became harder for a while there to get the girls because they just didn't want to give voice uh, metaphorically or in any manner at all. So we started with the boys and we wrote music about the male experience and, you know, the Kui March and going to war and being um, separated emotionally from your father and the long-term effects of that and and just and dancing and um, going out and collecting stones and all these sort of things when you go out the back paddock and bringing them back into a rehearsal which they certainly didn't years and it was a roaring success um, to the point that we had initially thought when we wrote the other grant that we just swap it and do a girls choir and they're like oh no 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 no, we're staying singing. You can just add another one. And so then we doubled the workload and doubled the time. And it was like, oh, okay, you know, right. <laughs> we'll do that then. And, um, and then on that third year, we, um, I had my second child and uh, we we're writing yet another grant. And 
they were wanting to go into to pursue the high school kids and you know their voices are changing their bodies are changing their worldview is changing so i really had to look at a creating a vehicle that would allow for the maximum amount of fluidity initially so okay you can't carry a tune in a bucket because your voice has changed here how about you play some japanese drums the taiko um and if you can move like that well you know and you're pretty good on a sporting field maybe you'll be able to do a bit of dance as well um or put you behind a camera or you know and we'll create these interdisciplinary um uh, performances so that's what we did and that became the high school group maxed out and so by the end of that third year we were well and truly having going having gone from you know august residency camps and a september performance to a well and truly a year-long program and whether i had imagined it or not it started to look more and more like a full-time job um and and i really wasn't pat well you know, there was very little to be paid on it for the first decade. Um, mm. So I was just moonlighting, doing a whole lot of other stuff in Sydney to keep it going. Um, and also learning about organisational structures and what worked and trying to collate a team of remarkable humans around me that shared the same values. I have so many questions. Um, so why was it important for you to draw upon other communities outside of Canabal? Yes. Well, um, a lot of what happens, or certainly what happened, and I think it still does, is that it becomes town versus town at a sporting scenario. And so instead of there being collaboration, there is deep-seated competition and there isn't a sense of regional uh, collectiveness or cohesion. Um, it's very, very hard. You know, they, the town does their show. They have the local netball, netball teams, football teams, um, Jim Carners, um, horse riding. You know, I mean, it, it's very much about that. And for me, I felt like I needed to literally be a bird and fly over the whole region and see it and that perspective by flying above it in all of its glory. Um, and to do that, that also meant that I had this lovely opportunity to bring like minds together um, from the region and to come up with something collectively that I just knew would be better because of its diversity than if I just focused on one community. Love so, that. Love so that. Mm. And so it's become so much more than just a choir. What does it give your young children? Mm. Not young, not only young, but you know, what kind of opportunity and when you look oh, at it's property just, and... it's so wonderful, you know, like it's more than you could ever imagine. Um, after this COVID hiatus or the chrysalis, as I call it, we're about to emerge, <laughs> hopefully like a butterfly, um, we'll see. Um, but what I've noticed this year is the poise and the purpose of the children 
and their absolutely steely determination to create something that is meaningful and magnificent. It's, it's really a profound energy to be around. And as a jaded professional, uh, mm -hmm. potentially for a lot of adults, you know, they are constantly energized and motivated by that pure sense of purpose and, and that sense of flying, you know, the joy in their sound and their playing and their movement. So I, I think it's a fairly extraordinary thing to give people a vehicle for self-expression that resonates with them, that can have a trajectory in their life beyond the immediacy of that moment in time. And to create those relationships and those connections that will last a lifetime. And mm. um, that's that really hit me this time. And I went, wow, there's um something pretty profound happening here. And we've now got candidates who were in those earlier years coming back as supervisors. I mean, blow me down. Um, so good. It's lovely. It's really lovely. Can you help me understand for you as the conductor and the person that is running the whole show, um, at the end of the day, when you pull your performance together and you and you and you do your performances, is it only about sounding beautiful and wonderful and the best that they can sound, or is what's the oh, look now? So look, I I might look like the one that's doing it all up the front, um, but I have an army of volunteers um, who make it happen. I have an executive director. I have a board now. I have administrative people because it's you know, it's 350 bodies that you're moving at any moment in time. Um, what happens, a mate of mine calls it Murrumbilla magic. And I was trying to explain it to the children in the maxed out company last Saturday evening, only a couple of days ago. So it's today, Tuesday, so only a couple of days ago. And what we did was we lit the lanterns that were made based off the artwork by Frank White from Frank Wright from Walgett. And they're the guru, the, um, the fish uh, that everyone uh, loves. And then they go, you know, fishing for this big fishing comp this weekend, actually in Colorado, Bry. Um, a lot of money to be made if you get the heaviest one. Um, anyway, it's a Murray cod. And uh, we turned all the lights off in the space. And then uh, Frank and two of the other artists um, carried them, like processed them through the space while we sang um, a work that's going to happen while that is happening in the performance. And I just asked people to then place themselves in the paddock and to bring that sense of that space into fundamentally, you know, a dance hall. And it was magical. And um, it was a bit of a light bulb moment because this is what we do, you know, in theatre they call it the suspension of disbelief. And what I like to think is that when people come into a Murrumbilla concert, they have an opportunity to just let go of what they think might happen and, um, and hear live music that is coming from the heart. Um, that is often sung in language 
that they may not have even acknowledged exists. Um, that is the first time anyone's ever heard it because it's new Australian music. So it's not like a tune that they know necessarily. And to be completely engulfed or immerse themselves into the energy of that moment and and ideally leave leave really happy and feeling that there is something that is positive and beautiful and joyful in a fairly jaded world um, and that the future is really good when you look at these humans in front of you who are doing it with such an open heart you know so that's um my role is to get everyone into that bubble um and i just do that by placing myself there and then allowing them to come in to come to you. and the the arc of the energy between their our chamber orchestra and the ensemble and the audience happens and it's wonderful you could do what you're doing anywhere in the world by the sounds of things because you're so talented at what you do why do you stay in Australia and in, in rural Australia? Oh, I don't think there's any better place in the world. <laughs> I've seen it. I haven't seen enough of the world yet, but there is, there is something about that uh, connection that you have growing up in the country uh, that is, it's a tie that binds you forever uh, to that place and the energy of that place. For me, it tastes, I can't explain that any other way, um, but when I make art that is collaborative with the artists and the children, that is multidisciplinary, to really, really try and give the most um, comprehensive um, understanding of that space that I can at that moment in time, it tastes so wonderful that uh, you don't want to not do it. Uh, now, I like grilled chops with salt, but also with a bit of lemon. You know, the lemon just, ah, oh, so good. Grilled lamb chops with salt and lemon juice. Come on. Um, so that's it's sort of how I, I see it. I mean, it's still a chop if you don't put salt or lemon juice on it, sure but it, it tastes better. And I, I really uh, love, I love the energy of the people and the creativity and the resilience. And I firmly believe in their incredible capacity because um, someone believed in mine. And uh, I think that's a fairly good way to live your life. How do you hope for um, Morabella to grow in the years to come? Um, I don't think it needs to grow bigger. I think it needs to grow deeper. Um, and as a country, we are, we've been having conversations that people are just coming to for 17 years. So we've been sort of um, leading uh, people creatively into a space of um, acceptance and of understanding that in other aspects of their life they might not necessarily allow themselves to have that thought trajectory. I think the arts are very uniquely placed always to make you feel and 
experience things that you wouldn't normally in your day's march. Um, I think the children and the young adults that actually create it themselves, like they are the creators, that has a more profound and significant effect on them over a much longer period than perhaps the audience. You get it for that short amount of time, like they might be there for that hour and a half, you know, and they're like, oh, but the children, of course, have had these residency camps um, and then I, they, they're living it, they're actually becoming it. So that has a, a profound effect and a lot of the research neurologically as well um, says that that has wonderful benefits uh, for them in every aspect of their life. Um, so I, I would just like to imagine that we have the support of the communities and the educators and you know the children and their families and that there are people who come from rural and remote areas who haven't returned but can see a way of supporting us um, as a way of giving back. Uh, there is a whole lot of people who go, I've turned my back on where they grew up and they don't necessarily want to have any connection at all. And I'd like to say to them, if they're a listener, you know, it's not all or nothing. You know, we would love to have you involved with our program. Would you like to help support the children or the artists or us uh, touring? Or, you know, there are ways of still supporting and enabling a connection. Um, don't, don't turn your back on it. I know some of it's not great, uh, but there's some things that are just so worth keeping. And that's a marvellous thing. It's a marvellous thing to be able to bear witness to that. Um, and I sort of hope, you know, in another 50 years when I'm too old to do it, um, well, one of those kids that I'm, you know, working with now will go, pick me. <laughs> of I course want to do it. <laughs> I want to end on you um, mentioned to me one of your, you, you said to me that you are renowned for the phrase onwards with relentless positivity. How did yes. you come to that, Michelle? <laughs> I don't know. I think it was at a point, you know, when everything is such a um, such a show in four dimensions, like it's just going wrong in four dimensions. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, at different points is in motherhood and juggling work and whatever, and I went, right, that's it. Um, we're just going to go onwards but with relentless positivity. Um, the glass is uh half full it has every capacity of having more water or champagne poured into it we're just going to look forward like the emu um and uh it actually it, we did a, a gig for hillary clinton about four years ago and got to meet her and her insane entourage and she sent a beautiful handwritten note to myself and the the girls afterwards and she signs hers off as onwards and I went oh she's just missing two more words <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah I think it is important to stay positive it really has been um a wonderful modus operandi for me um and I think if you keep your mindset positive you attract positive people who want to be part of the solution, um, who believe that things are worth thinking through um, to create positive solutions for. And, you know, being in the arts in Australia, it's not easy. And it's certainly not being easy um, coming through COVID and, and further. 
But if you do try to maintain this positive worldview, because we have an exceptional country with exceptional capacity, um, and if I'm lucky enough to be part of amplifying that, I think that's that's enough to be saying onward with relentless positivity. <laughs> Michelle, it's been so enlightening and such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for coming on Life on the Land. Oh, gosh. It's my absolute pleasure. It is lovely, lovely speaking to you too, actually. Really lovely meeting you. Thank you. And for what you're doing too. How wonderful. Could you feel her energy too? So much energy coming from that woman. I think Michelle Leonard is such a national treasure, leading a life on her own terms. I love that she lives in Sydney but can't really bear to be away from Western New South Wales. So she still creates all her magic there in that place. I think living in remote areas can certainly place children at a disadvantage sometimes, but programs like Morabella Voices are just such a great example of the incomparable magic that can also occur when these communities are mobilized in the right way. Congratulations, Michelle, on all you have and all you continue to achieve with Morabilla. A reminder before I go that our spring edition of the Crazy Home magazine is still on sale. The easiest way for you to get your hands on it and other editions is via a subscription at crazyher.com.au. And if you subscribe to two or three years now, you'll receive a gorgeous tan Lewin Hyde bag for free. Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back next week with another Life on the Land story.